there, Internet. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And this is I Will Fight You, a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone-cold facts since 1986. Today's fact, fan fiction has an nadir, and it is Love Never Dies. <laughs> it's time for Andrew Lloyd Webber. It's time for Andrew Lloyd Webber. It's time for Andy Dubs and his huge boner. And his relingering bitterness over Sarah Brightman. Okay, look, this is gonna get real dumb. This is Andy Dubs fanfic sequel to the phantom of the opera which he was like at some point oh it's not really a sequel it's just kind of like also takes place in the same universe and then later he was like oh it is a sequel <laughs> but like i think it could stand by itself and like my dude just be honest about your otp it's my otp too then he was and then it was called love never dies and uh this broadway horny it's so fucking horny so Sir Andrew has been working on this thing since 1990. It has been workshopped for the last eight years. The version that we saw is not the final version that's on tour right now. Nope. The Phantom of the Opera has been running in New York City for 30 years. 30 whole years. And I want to point this out because I think that will put it in context when we look at the fact that Love Never Dies have not lasted two <laughs> In any of the productions of Love Never Dies, it has not lasted two years. And let me further contextualize this by saying that Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark lasted for three. <laughs> this this whole Broadway is so horny. It's very horny. This whole thing is basically going to be a smut watch then. It's definitely going to be a smut watch. Get some tissues ready to stop up those bloody noses. This is Smut Watch. And if you don't understand that reference, watch some anime. I just want to let you guys know that my experience with Phantom of the Opera, I saw it like once, I think in West End when I was like, maybe like 13. My more recent exposure has been watching Lindsay Ellis's videos discussing the Phantom of the Opera, which are analyses may remind you, not recaps. So I do not remember most of this. So this was this was harrowing. <laughs> I was in uh, junior high when the Phantom of the Opera movie directed by Joel Schumacher came out. I have heard of that one. Yeah, everyone in my class was f***ing obsessed with it, and uh, we ended up watching it during band class, and it's bad. It's worth mentioning that I did later go to the Broadway on tour show then moseyed its way around to Edmonton when I was like 16 or 17. It's worth noting that I have never seen it live. I was also in junior high. But you see, it was seventh grade, and we only had 30 members in our high school marching band, so I was asked to join the pit percussion. And when I did, and our show was Phantom of the Opera, I got to play the really cool intro by myself. Ding, 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 ding. And it was awesome, because I had played piano for like 12 years at that point. And so then I started looking up every Phantom of the Opera thing I could and downloading it illegally from Kazaa or Shazam or whatever I was using at the time. Burnt myself like 12 CDs of various things and various moods based on Phantom songs. Uh, and then the Joel Schumacher video came out, and I watched that, and I was the only person in my school obsessed with it. And I thought, the phantom was super hot because that's my type i guess what dudes who can't sing <laughs> dudes who can't oh. sing and who are moody with their faces half covered but aren't actually unattractive guys who are extra and broody guys who are extra and broody yeah that's right so wait am i hearing this right did we all get exposed to the phantom of the opera when we were in junior high yeah sounds about right yeah wow well let me tell you the chandelier thing is pretty cool looking back on it it's not the best film um the singing is not very good but i will be damned if the past the point of no return isn't still one of the greatest things ever. I love that 
that song. And I love that adaptation of it. God, you were so into like broody smart guys. I was. Do you know Doc Ock? I thought was so awesome from Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. What? Yep. Alfred Molina? Yep. <laughs> Welcome to Baby McKenzie, everybody. Who also wrote Dragon Riders, a Pern fanfiction. You're a dear friend and I love you very much. But I cannot follow you. You are going where I cannot follow. I will walk into this darkness with my head held high. Actually, we should probably all just sort of hold hands right now and buckle the f*** up. Because <sighs> we're about to embark on this dark journey where the Phantom of the Opera moves to Coney f***ing Island. <laughs> and then gaslights his girlfriend again. There was a part of me that like really wanted us to all watch different versions of the show and then try to reconcile what we saw during the recap. But there's only one version available on tape, and it's the Melbourne production. Which is a real shame. Because apparently in one of the earlier versions, Andy Dubbs tried to recreate the whole, like, frame narrative flashback thing with the chandelier in this one by being like, Cody Island was wonderful, wasn't it? And then, like, a ghost is like, yeah, but it was all your fault, old lady. And she was like, it was. Let's think back. (laughs) Cody Island rises up around her. This is awesome. I just want to be real clear here. I am so someone who is somewhat of two minds about saying that all literary canon is basically on the same level as fan fiction. I, I think there's an interesting discussion to be had there, but this is a fanfic. This is a fucking fanfic. This is definitely a fanfic and I'm for it. It's got everything. It's got your characters getting back together for no reason. It's got retconning in a deeper connection than was present in the original media. Retconning in the canon love interest being an asshole. Oh, that's my favorite part. It's basically an AU, but instead of a coffee shop, it's Coney Island in the circus. <laughs> Cody Island AU. I think it's going to be the next big thing. I want to put all my fan fictions there. So instead of a horrific flashback, we start with a sad sack who descends from the ceiling again, as he does in most scenes in this show. (laughs) With like a half organ, half piano thing to the side. There's no way it will actually work. I want to make a quick correction here. This thing actually starts with the Universal logo, because Universal will just fund anything these days, I guess. <laughs> oh shit, they were gonna do the Dark Universe, weren't they? Yeah, they, they were. were! Were they gonna put the Phantom in the Dark Universe? Oh, one can hope. I hope. I hope, I hope. It'd just be like a completely out of place, like, broody guy with light scarring on one side of his face. Why do you all want to take over the universe? <laughs> will this help me get Christine? <laughs> And then, of course, we have the little text prologue saying, like, oh, there was a fire at an opera house and a mob rampaged through the basement looking for the man they held responsible. I think he, like, legit set fire to stuff and killed people. He did. We're already starting the, like, gentle OTP rewrites for this fic. Yeah, it's worth remembering throughout all of this, the Phantom killed... Like three people. Kidnapped and emotionally abused and gaslit a woman. Isolated her from her peers. Set fire to an opera house with people inside. Not a nice guy. Anyway, he's a sad sack lamenting about how Christine left him. Yeah, and, he, and he's got like a giant portrait of her that's like three times the size of him. I thought for a second it was like a double exposure of a locket he was holding or something. If you stood him up and tripled him, that's how big this portrait is. It's gigantic. Where did he get this? I don't know. Wasn't the whole thing about the Phantom, wasn't the redeeming theme at the end that he, like, realized that in order for Christine to be happy and live, he had to give up his possessive love of her and, like, let her be free and stop kidnapping her to his basement? (laughs) 
Remember how the whole Phantom's character arc was about learning that love does not equal ownership and the ultimate expression of his love for Christine was to let her go because Sir Andrew doesn't? What if it was 10 years later and he's like, "Mm, no, no, I think I'm still obsessed with her and want to possess a person. Also, two minutes in, during like his lament, we start up with some like rock rhythm bass in the background because Sir Andrew couldn't hold off for three whole minutes. (laughs) Andy Dubs, like, plows through to the stuff that he wants to see as quickly as possible. Like a good fan fiction author. I want to get to the smut, so I'm going to run as fast as I can to get there. Who cares about the plot? At one point, the Phantom sings, Still I ache deep in my core, while his hands are clasped very tightly between his legs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's going to come back. Don't worry. To his credit, uh, the guy playing the Phantom is singing his face off in this song that I hate. Half his face. (laughs) So Phantom sees his sad song and then he ascends to the ceiling again because the only way that this character enters or exits any scene in this whole production is either descending from the ceiling or bursting through a window. And we descend into a circus. Coney Island, 1905, and it's the worst Cirque du Soleil I've ever seen. I love it. Didn't Phantom of the Opera take place in the 1880s? Yes. Yes. How is this 10 years later? His fanfic, though. So for the record, every costume in this scene is my aesthetic. The show is called Mr. Wise Phantasma. It is supposed to be, quote unquote, a freak show. Basically, the shock value of a freak show is, ooh, little people and people with disabilities exist. We get introduced to uh, Dr. Gangle, Miss Fleck, and Mr. Squelch as these three characters. We're just going to refer to them as the trio. They act entirely as a unit. They hold hands throughout most of the show. Also, a lot of the choreography involves picking Miss Fleck up. I'm five foot two and I hate being picked up. I can only imagine how infuriating it is to be constantly picked up when you're three foot five. It's also frustrating because like these three feel like they're supposed to be an important unit. They feel like they're supposed to be like interesting recurring characters, maybe with inner lives or at the very least like a group inner life among their circle. But Don't worry, Andrew Lloyd Webber immediately forgets them and they'll just show up sporadically now and again. Yep. Unimportant, they are not Christine or the Phantom. Anything that is not Christine or the Phantom or just shitting on Raul. Um, <laughs> everything else just fades away. The intro song for Phantasma is playing off how shocking and weird this is, but there's nothing here that I haven't seen walking down White Ave at 10 p.m. on a Saturday, honestly. I feel like I'm trying to remember everything from Phantom of the Opera of like, oh my gosh, the opera, look at this grand display, look at this almost like fall of the southern gothic aesthetic that we've got going on here. And this one is just like, well, here's eight minutes of pointless displays of like people that look a little weird. A giant head just emerged. Is this is this fun? Is this whimsical? Is this fun we're having? I'm watching this and I think to myself like, oh, Andy Dubs got all hopped up on some cat shit again, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, this Cody Island number is about a million hours too long. I also feel like Dr. Gangle was at some point supposed to be played by Alan Cumming, but he said no. <laughs> Like, at some point, somebody in a velocipede, like, just sort of glides on by with, like, a man in a symbol monkey costume in the back, and the camera, like, focuses on it, like, hey, look, 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 it's that thing. It's the symbol monkey thing. This is going to come up again, right? Like it did last time? Like it totally came up again. It didn't come up again, but maybe this will come up again. It doesn't come up again. I hate this creepy symbol monkey. I don't understand it. Mackenzie, do you understand the symbol monkey thing? I don't understand the symbol monkey thing, but there was a cape in this part of the episode that I also really liked, and it was the wizard's cape. He drew all the attention just by flourishing that thing once. Oh, it was so good. I want that. And then we have like a little carousel thing, and like these boys just look like they're having 
such fun on the carousel. And then they get off the carousel and run in circles and then run away. Are we having fun? And then after approximately 8,000 hours, this number ends with them introducing from Paris, France... The ooh-la-la girl, that's right, it's Meg Giri, that character you don't remember from Phantom of the Opera. For our listeners, she's the one who cradles Christine during Angel of Music, da-da-da-da. She's the one who cradles Christine through that and goes, Christine, who are you talking to? And she helps support Christine throughout the show. So she's Christine's BFF. Yeah. Wow, this this is so, oh my god, this is so a sequel fanfic. <laughs> She's here. She's like a burlesque dancer. Her numbers are pretty solid. Also, her mom's here. I I guess her mom was also from Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, her mom was basically the leader of the back of the theater house. Um, She was the one who often kept in contact with the Phantom. And she was also the one who would always be like, everyone should be aware of the Phantom. Or when the new owners came in, she like would be like, the Phantom only asks for his monthly rent and, and for you to leave food by the back door every night at 8 p.m. with a little bowl of warm milk because he's basically a fey man. So you're saying that this all translates to she and her daughter both want to bone the Phantom. Yeah, yeah, that that, that does that. So, so this is how the Phantom lived then. Yeah, we now have a backstory dirge to explain how the Phantom got to America, because I guess that needed explaining. It didn't. And now Meg constantly dances in hopes that he watches her. So, like, I'm trying to imagine this. Coney Island is not a giant opera house. Is he just, like, hanging out in, like, the frickin' ramshackle, like, booth seats? Yes. So she's like, I'm a burlesque dancer. It's like the opera, but, (laughs) well, more appealing to the masses and also probably more fun most of the time. And, like, the lyrics from Madame Giry are along the lines of, well, Christine betrayed the Phantom. She chose handsomeness and and money over genius and art. And, you know, I'm starting to suspect Sir Andrew's still a little bit bitter over Sarah Brightman. So tell me about Sarah Brightman. Sarah Brightman was this young soprano in the 80s who Andrew Lloyd Webber divorced his wife to marry and he basically wrote the role of Christine for her. She was the originator of the role. And they were together till about 1991 and then they got divorced. And they say it was an amicable divorce. But sometimes I wonder, especially with this shit, especially since the Phantom is Andrew Lloyd Webber's self-insert character. Oh my god. (laughs) This is a complete self-insert. Oh my god. The music never stops coming. So that explains why everyone wants to bone the Phantom. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And yeah, I love this idea. Like, ugh, Christine, she was so awful. She decided to marry a man who, like, loved her and wanted her to be happy and support her in her chosen career and not try to carry her away to a basement and isolate her from her peers. Speaking of Christine. Oh, finally. It's been 20 minutes. It's time for us to suddenly turn towards the pier as Christine arrives from Paris. But before that, we have to say every rich person name that we can think of so we know what time it is. Asta, Vanderbilt, Rockefeller. I can't think of any others. Uh, DuPont! The tire people? <laughs> the tire people are actually pretty fancy. They actually do tire. Um, they also do a bunch of scientific research and things like that. They're pretty fancy rich. The Kennedys! The, not yet. The Roosevelts! Also not yet. No, well, I tried. Look, the important thing is that the fancy name that we're most focused on here for about five seconds is Hammerstein. Of Rogers and Hammerstein. Because Christine has apparently been invited to sing for her American debut for Hammerstein and his productions. In his brand new quote-unquote opera house. Don't worry, this is not gonna fucking come up. (laughs) Like, ever again. 
But before we actually see Christine here, we have to see how far she has fallen because we have to have like another five minutes of just shitting all over Raul. And here we go. The character assassination of Raul part one. He shows up, he starts yelling at reporters about how her proper title is the Vicomtesse de Chagny, and also yelling at them not to take pictures of his kid. Uh, and then the photographers start yelling stuff about how she's here singing to pay off all of his gambling debts, because he has those, I guess. Yep. You know what? He could have just been broke. At this point in history, a lot of European nobles were just straight up broke and marrying American heiresses to get more money. Yeah. He didn't need to have a gambling problem, but Andrew Lloyd Webber wanted us to really not like Raoul. It's spectacular. He's possessive of his wife. He's lost all of their money gambling. He doesn't understand her. And now it's time to meet Gustav. Oh God, this fucking kid. This kid is like the gothic version of the kid in Hallmark Christmas movies who's obsessed with getting his parent and the other guy together. He's basically Charlie Bucket, but more gothic and more obnoxious because he gets more songs than Charlie Bucket does. Golly gee whiz, look at that horseless carriage. Yeah, there is a horseless carriage. It is not like a car. (laughs) It is literally a carriage with a bicycle on the front. (laughs) It's like it's being pulled by a freaking Thestral or something. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, we'll take you to to Mr. Hammerstein. This is totally above the level. Oh my god. Like, the trio pulled them in with the oldest freaking trick in the book. Oh yes, no, we understand Mr. Hammerstein was here to meet you in person, but we represent him and you should get in and it's fine. Everything's fine. How are you? Let's get into this weird goth carriage. This will definitely take us to our prestigious employer. Raul lasts like five seconds here because he's no, no, Mr. Hammerstein said he himself was going to come and get us. And they're like, but, and he's like, okay. Should we also point out that when Christine enters this scene, she is backlit and radiant? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Andy Dubs is not subtle. Also, Christine's actress has one expression on her face. No, she has she has two, but the second one only shows up once. But the other one that she has the rest of the time is winsome, very scared deer. Yeah, she is definitely acting with her voice, but not with her face. Yeah. It's theater. Nobody was supposed to be able to see her face, but then they videotaped this f***ing thing with a lot of close-ups for oh, some reason. A lot of close-ups. <laughs> on her face all constantly just that scared deer look yes i love you dearly or gustav you need to calm down i'm so terrified i'm hardy for the phantom i don't know why this thing is like in all close-ups i'm pretty sure it's to hide how fucking tiny this set is <laughs> like they all freaking shove themselves into this little horseless carriage which by the way this is exactly the same ploy that the misfits pulled to get luna dark to their mansion That's instead of beating up a gem of the holograms <laughs> And so this is like straight up kidnapping, right? Yes. Also, one of my favorite parts of this is you can tell that they're used to like the stage production because both Raul and Christine, when they get in the carriage, immediately just kind of go blank and stare forward because they're not used to people being able to see into the carriage. (laughs) And then the camera zooms in and they were like, oh, crap. And then they look towards the camera and then they focus again. It's like definitely when you're on stage, the rule is that you will always try to be at least mildly in character. You can't break on stage, but they are so tired. Yeah. And then also as the scene changes, Oh, who descends from the ceiling (laughs) but the phantom? (laughs) He's not even in this scene. We just have to remind you that he's here. God, I want to enter every scene just descending (laughs) from the ceiling. (laughs) In a huge cape or overcoat. Yep. 
So we go to, I guess this is a hotel on Coney Island. And like, they still don't think anything's weird. Nope. Also, Christine finally gets her first line 25 minutes in. She has been dead silent this whole time. We just kind of watch her in the background be winsome and terrified. And finally she speaks and it's like, oh, Gustav. Because she is an object. She makes one choice in this entire production. And it's not even really a choice. And now we begin the character assassination of Raoul part two, because it turns out he drinks and he's a bad dad. Yep. Yep. Father, will you play with me? No, I have to finish my bourbon. <laughs> Where is Hammerstein? <laughs> Gustav got a present from the uh, the employees at Coney Island. It's like a little monkey snow globe toy thing. It's a creepy music box with a clown sitting on top. How lovely. And it plays the Angel of Music theme. Hey guys, remember the Angel of Music theme? Angel of Music. Remember how good it was from the first one? Remember? You guys, 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 I need you to focus here. (laughs) Angel of Music was good and you like the Phantom of the Opera, so you love Love Never Dies. (laughs) Anyway, a telegram shows up. And says that, oh, Mr. Hammerstein will meet you down in the hotel bar. And Raul goes off to meet him down in the hotel bar. Only in the original version of the production, there wasn't a meeting with Hammerstein. He just left to go to a bar. Oh my god. This play used to actually be less subtle. (laughs) There's been a mirror window in this room in the dead center the whole time. And it's like, you guys, you guys, can we just get to the part where the phantom comes in? And he doesn't burst through a window just yet because we have to have a really weird lesson about what love is. Yeah, because frickin' Gustav is like, why doesn't daddy love me? <laughs> and Christina has this whole song that's like, oh, you know, just just don't worry about what you hear or what you think or what people say. Just like close your eyes and, and, and just like feel love. It's probably fine. Just ignore all of your bad feelings. They're lying to you. Love is good. Love is good. Don't worry about it. Just don't, don't worry. Maybe sometimes love kidnaps you and, and, uh, and gaslights you. Sometimes love brainwashes you and takes you away from all your friends. That's love. That's also love. It's fine. Totally love. Totally love. Dad loves you, even though he, um, drinks a lot and shouts and, uh. And doesn't play with you ever. Love is great. Anyway, sweetheart, go to bed. And like the moment that kid is off stage. <laughs> My Christine! <laughs> In through the frickin' balcony window. Did he scale a wall to get up yes, there? Yes, absolutely. Yes, he did. Absolutely, he did. Oh my god. And then, of course, because this is Christine, who is just here to be pined over, she just falls to the ground and faints. Of course. She swoons. And the Phantom picks her up, and while swooned and unconscious, she still throws her arms around his neck. Oh my god, immediately he just puts all his creepy possessive hands on her. And then lays her down in a chase. Well, you know what? Honestly, she's all taking this pretty well for a little bit when she wakes up. She's not even like, how the hell are you here? You're supposed to be dead? What the frick? She kind of does that very mildly. There's actually this amazing line read by Christine where she says, How dare you come and claim me now? Good job, winsome dear. She still had that look on her face as she said it, but it was such a good line read. And then he's just like, look, I probably have some things I need to apologize for, but mostly, like, I feel like you need to apologize because, like, look, I didn't have any choice. My only options were to kidnap and enslave you. Look, my heart hurt. I felt bad. So I I had to kidnap you. This script completely forgets that that was a thing that happened. It seems to think that Christine was in a freaking like, twilight love triangle between Raul and the Phantom. Because now it's time for like a five minute dirge about when they boned that one time. 
Are you sure that dirge about how they boned is only five minutes? It's definitely five minutes. It feels longer. Because it's like five songs back to back about how they boned. The first one that's just about boning uh, is five minutes. And then the next one that's more about like how much they still love each other but can't be together or whatever, that one's a different song. So it doesn't count in the minute range. Let's just be real here. Let's turn to the audience because Andy Dubs did. And he said, they had sex. And then you touched me. And it's weird because they talk about like, quote unquote, moonless night where it was really dark. So she didn't have to be revolted by his face or whatever, which she never really was. But okay. She was shocked that one time, but that's about it. She found his quote unquote hiding spot and they boned and then he left before the sun rose. And like, I'm really unsure as to when this happened, like before or after the end of Phantom of the Opera. If it's after, why did she think he was dead? It must have been before, right? In some indeterminate period in which she was in his basement. It could be during music of the night, I guess. She basically swears off of him at the end of Act 1, and there's like six months between Act 1 and Act 2. She would have been heavily pregnant if they had banged before the end of Act 1. And Act 2 is like all horror movie. When did this happen? You know, I don't think Andy looked back. Yeah, I think he straight up forgot how his play went. Uh, probably. She talks about this choice that she made between like Raul and the Phantom and like he kidnapped Christine and then threatened to kill Raul if she didn't agree to marry him. I feel like I'm not splitting hairs to say that there's a distinction between that and making a choice between these two men. Like I'm into monster boyfriends. I've gone on the record as being into monster boyfriends and this really should be hitting it. But like... <sighs> <laughs> also by the way these guys are like screaming about how they boned uh while gustav has like just left the room is probably brushing his teeth and is maybe settling down with a good book under the covers with a flashlight yeah that kid is definitely still awake gustav just has his covers and he's reading something and in the and out in the living room he hears his mom going and then you caressed me and i touched you says a stranger <laughs> Anyway, after the dirge about how they boned, they sing another song about how they're sad and they don't love each other except they do, and they're on a balcony, and this whole thing is just f***ing padding for time. And, like, this whole set rotates around so you can see the balcony and see them pine on the balcony, and this whole set is a teeny tiny spectacle, and I hate it. And when we say there are, like, five songs in a row about how much they love each other, we're not joking. There are literally, like, five separate songs with five different melodies in a row here. It's really long. And finally, we get interrupted for a little intermission in these five boning songs by Gustav, who's wandering around and is like, Mother, I had a bad dream. Who's your friend? <laughs> I really, really love the Phantom's, like, oh shit, it's a kid face. <laughs> it's really f- good. That's the face I make when a child suddenly appears in my presence. Like, imagine this. Imagine you were really obsessed with this girl and, like, you maybe dated for a little bit, but you never really got closure, so, and you're also a creep, so you remain obsessed. And then, like, years later, you finally reconnect with her and maybe she actually kind of had feelings for you. And then, whoops, she's got a <laughs> so the phantom after like christine introduces him as her friend the phantom proceeds to like michael jackson style dangle this kid over a balcony i don't understand the phantom here he's like instantly like i would be your spooky uncle i like how you're doing john's aegean voice there i definitely just stifled my fingers while saying that too uh, the phantom's like i'll show you everything you want to know about phantasma let's go see some gothic shit child and gustav goes okay i'm gonna go to bed thanks <laughs> He runners off. 
And then the Phantom immediately turns to Christine and said, yeah, I'll fucking kill your kid if you don't sing this song for me. Wow. What a beautiful romance this is. And then we get like the Phantom riff as Christine is like being sad over the fact that she has to sing for the Phantom. Why did the Phantom riff happen there and not when he burst through the window? It feels like that was a perfect moment for it. And like, here's the thing is that he's like, oh, I shall pay twice of what Mr. Hammerstein is paying if you sing for me for one night. And also I shall pay off all your debts and also I'll freaking kill your kid if you don't. But also, I love you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Then Raul comes back, and he's probably also drunk because he was waiting at a bar for Mr. Hammerstein. She's like, I'm angry and drunk, and I'm going to go to bed, and I'm a bad person. Christine does say, things have changed, which presumably that's where she tells him, oh, we're going to perform for somebody else. But she doesn't say, oh, by the way, the Phantom's alive, and he threatened our child. Nope. She neglects to inform him of that part, and we know because the next scene is him finding that out from Meg and Madame Giri. We cannot have any suspense in this at all. Like, no drawing out tension or anything, which I feel like tension and drawing out suspense was kind of what made the whole, like, Phantom of the Opera production tick. Yeah. Not here, though. He wants to just slam right into his OTP. I mean, like any good fanfiction author. So the Jiris are both here, and they reunite with Christine and Raoul. This is actually kind of a fun number, because it's like this, Oh, it's you, my old friend, I'm so happy to see you. Wait, what? Who hired you? What? 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 Oh, it's fine, it's fine, we're fine, it's so nice to be together. I am so upset. I love you! By the way, Raul brings up the Phantom's, like, Coney Island name, which is Mr. Y, and I'm trying to figure out if there's a pun around Mr. Y, because, like, spelled out, it's M-R-Y, which is abbreviated mystery, but if they were gonna do that, why not call him Mr. E? Mystery Inc. went back in time and said, no, you can't have this. We're making something good here. (laughs) So yeah, they have this song about, oh shit, it's the Phantom. Oh shit, oh shit. Because Raul's like, oh, this is weird. What can you tell me about Mr. Y? And she's like, well, I can tell you he's the Phantom. Like, no preamble whatsoever. Just right away. Yeah, it's the fucking Phantom, dude. (laughs) Raul is like, I'll deal with you later, Christine. And then turns to the audience and says, I drink too much. (laughs) (laughs) And then, by the way, they're kids missing. Gustav spends most of this just sort of wandering around in the background. He's kind of wandered off into the background and wandered over to a piano where he starts playing and, and the phantom just kind of descends out of nowhere and it's like, wow, he plays so beautifully. Oh yeah, he's like, what are you playing? And he's like, oh, I just came up with this off the top of my head. And he's It just like, comes out of my head unbidden and then I have to play it or otherwise it just gets stuck. Which is exactly what you said at the beginning of the film. Doesn't it sound familiar? <laughs> and the fandom's like, hmm, well, let's see. If a child composes, it must be because someone in his family composes. This is the only way that genetics works. <laughs> also, hmm, let's see. It's been uh, one, two, for ten years since we fucked him. He plays mm. like me. He's just ten years old. <laughs> oh, my God. It's the best moment. He does some really obvious math, and then he just sort of sits in the foreground of the shot. Ten years old. <laughs> That's the loudest fucking thing. Well, this kid is just noodling around on a piano, and he's like, clearly he is my child. The Phantom proceeds to have, like, a fucking existential crisis, and now it's time for a rock ballad. <laughs> yes, it is. This has been my only exposure to Love Never Dies. I heard it existed. Then I saw this Musical number 
right here and it was all i ever needed to know about it until now <laughs> until now and context does not make this thing any less wild this whole song is a really roundabout way of asking whether the kid is gone <laughs> it really is this is called the beauty underneath you can watch it on youtube it's a thing. It is pure spectacle Broadway. It's everything I love. Including like actors crammed into like little glass pillars that then get like moved around on stage. Can you imagine being the person in the production? You get your role like, yeah, you're the person in the fucking glass pillar who doesn't get to move for two hours. Yeah, because this set piece stays here for a while. This set piece stays here until the end of act one. And there's no trap doors under that. You're just in there. You just live in that box now. Well, like a little kid gawks at you. It's beautiful. I love all this beautiful gosh shit. I'm definitely goth, daddy. There's like a reverse centaur in the background of this whole number that I feel does not get enough attention from anybody. <laughs> like a skeletal reverse centaur. Yeah, this whole piece has so much weird crap to look at, and none of it makes any sense, and it's all, like, the same kind of stuff as the beginning of the musical with, like, the Coney Island nonsense. I guess it's supposed to be, like, creepy or scary to look at, and instead it's just kind of weird. A lot of these pieces are never reused later in the play, because, like, Andrew Lloyd Webber doesn't believe in budgets, I guess. <laughs> I'll be right back. No problem. Do you like looking at weird stuff? Do you think about weird stuff too? Do you ever shop at Hot Topic and buy some Nightmare Before Christmas merchandise? What do you think of Spencer's? Do you like wearing lots of black? I like Spencer's! <laughs> I like Hot Topic! Yes! I want to buy a striped shirt and wear it underneath <laughs> a black t-shirt! Yes! I like Nightmare Before Christmas! <laughs> yes! Give me more Invader Zim! <laughs> yes! <laughs> I want to chain connecting my wallet to my pants! I want more jelly bracelets! <laughs> Do you want Joan and Vasquez to have all your baby boys? Yes! Do you hold up a spork? Do you like black hair dye? <laughs> Yes! Are Gomez and Morticia Adams your perfect marriage pair? Yes! I don't know why people would say no to that one. No, they they, they are, though. That, yeah, one's, that, that one's universal. That one's legit. That one's legit. Why don't we ever sit quietly with our hands in our laps when she <laughs> does boring. this? What have you done? <laughs> Nothing! Don't worry about it! Don't worry about it! You'll hear it later! For f**k's sake. I could hear you laughing from across the apartment. <laughs> So, yeah, the best part is that this kid actor, I hate him. I hate him so much. And also, much. like, every time that the Phantom's like, do you like this weird thing? He says, like, freaking Bastion on the back of Falcor at the end of the never-ending story. Like, yeah! <laughs> and what's really great is that he's very clearly leading up to, are you going to be cool with it if I take my mask off? Yeah! And, and the kid's seen stuff, and then, like, he takes off his mask, and then, you know, it's, like, barely a scar. Yeah, it's like a wig and some light scarring, and it's like, do you like all this goth stuff? Yeah! Do you want to see more? Yeah! Do you want to look at my face? No! <laughs> what I love about the Phantom's disfigurement makeup is that when he takes off the mask, he also takes off, like, the coiffure wig on top to reveal much sparser white hair underneath. And the thing is that the actor doesn't actually look like that, which means he's wearing a wig under a wig. Yeah. Again, 
this dude does not look that bad. He's got some light scarring. Andy Dubs can't stand his self-insert not being a hottie. Also, I should note that this hair thing only happens this one time. Yeah, when he takes the mask off again later, it's, it's just his normal hair. He got some spirit gum. So the kid screams and runs away immediately into Christine's arms, and the Phantom is immediately like, well, the kid got startled by my mild disfigurement. Time to be a huge drama queen about the fact that he can never know I'm his dad. Yeah, because he's like, oh, so I did some basic math, and also, as we established for like 20 minutes at a time, we had sex once, so... And then Christine's like, yeah, he's your baby. And like, oh man, dude, there's this whole point where she's like, yeah, I guess he's your baby. And he like falls to the ground on his knees and he's like, oh, son. <laughs> the Phantom's like, okay, you can go. And she's like, okay, but I will sing for you, I guess. And he's like, okay. And then Madame Jerry's like- Yeah, who has been hiding in one of these weird glass boxes this whole time. Right after Christine leaves, the Phantom like stares into a freaking mirror, which is one of those big glass boxes and like soliloquizes about how like, I'm so ugly and yet something so beautiful came for me. And like, man, this whole thing about the Phantom's disfigurement, meaning that he's fundamentally corrupt, that didn't age well. Nope. Because it, when he talks about, oh, all of the badness I've done can be undone in my legacy in this boy, he's not- talking about the opera house he set fire to or the people he killed. He's talking about being disfigured. Yeah. He says, oh, I'm going to leave everything to the child. Everything I have will be his. What is that? What does he have? Is it the circus? Is it the Ulala girls? Yes. He's going to leave this child his legacy of a big organ and a giant portrait of his mom. And then he leaves and then the glass pillar he was talking into opens up and Madame Giri was in there the whole fucking time. Like throughout the whole number. And she steps out and she's like, me and my daughter have done so much and we get nothing. Like we wanted to bone the phantom. But Christine has already boned him. And has a son. And now we don't even get his money, I guess. What money? Anyway, it's time for sad drunk Raul, I guess. The assassination of Raul, part three. He's drunk in a bar. It's like 6 a.m. He's like, ugh, what to do with me? Raul says, that's always been the question. And it's like, okay, that one is just Andy Dub writing out his notes to himself. What to do with Raul? He's got an entire song about why does she love me, writes Andrew Lloyd Webber, about the character that isn't his self-insert. And it's like, ugh, I'm so bad. I suck a lot. I'm a bad dad. I yell at my wife and child. Maybe I've hit her. You don't know. I drink and gamble. This song about how he's not good for Christine is definitely like to the tune of the Phantom of the Opera, the song itself, which is like, Andy, get it back in your pants for five seconds. <laughs> and like the bartender is trying so hard not to be in this musical. I love that bartender. So Meg shows up because apparently she's been swimming in the ocean she feels unclean i guess this is foreshadowing ish oh dude apparently in the original run it wasn't even foreshadowing they established that pretty clear right out the bat oh god oh I was so certain this was going to be not only a fanfic where, like, you break up the canon pairing to get your OTP, but also I was certain it was going to be, like, you're going to hook up the other part of the canon pairing with, like, a minor character, like the B-plot of Alpha and Omega, aren't you? Yeah, I was pretty certain that Raul and Meg were going to get together, but they didn't. I guess he just hated Raul that much. Anyway, Meg bails... And then, whoopsie-doo, switcheroo. Yeah, the bartender ducks behind the bar, and then the phantom pops up, dressed like a bartender. Then throughout this entire dick measuring contest between the phantom and Raul, I guess the bartender's just hiding behind the bar this whole time. Maybe the phantom 
just kill them? I like to believe that the bartender who was trying to avoid just being on stage during this musical was like, ah, it's time for the phantom to descend from the ceiling. I'm out. I'm so tired. I'm just going to lie down here and take a nap. I hate this. I'm only in this job for the money. So the phantom and Raul have a whole dick measuring contest song about how Christine will have to choose between them. And it's like, did these two ever have like a song or like a confrontation like this before in the original one? No. So they're talking like they're old rivals and like they know each other. They barely met. The Phantom tried to kill him once and that was it. So yeah, they have this whole like freaking Edward versus Jacob sing off at each other. At one point, the Phantom starts singing about like, are you sure this kid is yours? He's so talented, so musical. And like, does Andrew Lloyd Webber think musical talent is genetic? I think he does because that's pretty much the entirety of the Phantom's assumption as soon as he sees a kid fiddle fart around on a piano playing chopsticks. Clearly, this is my child. And he's like, so, Raul, you don't perform music. Don't you think at all that your child performs music? On the off chance that that was a problem, then wouldn't Raul also be like, oh, well, Christine performs music. There we go. No, no, it requires two musically talented parents to produce a child who plays piano. It's like red hair that way. Like, Andrew Lloyd Webber is not interested in subtext or tension at all because as soon as these two men meet up, he's like, by the way, I'm the baby daddy. Just so that's all out in the open here. I don't want any of us to be confused. And at this point, the play decides to remind you that Raul has a gambling problem because the Phantom and Raul place a bet over Christine. Which is great because she is definitely an active character. Ugh. Basically, Raul has to talk Christine out of singing the song that the Phantom wrote and then they will just go. But if Christine performs, then Raul leaves because they are making this into a thing where she chooses the Phantom or Raul instead of the Phantom threatened to kill my son if I didn't sing. Yeah. Yeah, and here's the thing. She's not aware of that ultimatum at all. Raul just completely out of context proceeds to go and beg Christine not to do the song. And like afterwards, Raul's like, oh shit, my wife. And like sobers up for the first time in the show. After like looking at the camera and being like, I have made bad decisions and I am a bad person. (laughs) Meanwhile, Meg is out front doing a body dance and then is like, oh my God, he has to see me now. I did such a good job. And she did do a good job. She did. It was very cute. If a little 20s sounding for 1905. So Meg goes backstage and she's like, mom, mom. Mom, I did so good. He has to love me now. Madam Jury's like, yeah, he got a baby though. He wasn't paying attention. Also, he's got a baby. And yeah, everything we worked for is dead now, I guess, because of these two reasons. And the funny thing is, is that you would think that she was doing this to sort of set certain events into play to try and like work on a revenge scheme. But no, she's just like- Passing on the information. Yeah, she's just mad. She's just mad and lamenting. And like on a first viewing, it looks like she's trying to goad Meg into doing something, but no. Nope. Everything that is set in motion from this point is a complete surprise. So we go to Christine's dressing room where she's talking with Gustav about, hey, once this is over, let's go like hang out, just you and me and be a good family and have fun. I'm definitely marked for death now. Yeah, you don't make future plans in these sorts of things. You don't. There's two things that mark a character for death. Either they promise to fix a relationship that's kind of strained just after this upcoming event, or they say, I have something important to tell you. I'll meet you here. Raul comes in and like, while turning to the camera and being like, don't forget anything that happens here, I'm still a bad person. And then he turns to Christine and is like, 
We should go. I got tickets on this boat. We should be on it. Let's just leave. Let's just not perform. Let's just leave. I'm not going to tell you anything, but let's just, let's go. Let's go. I'm just going to state this and then make you decide based on that. If you love me, we'll go. And of course, this whole dressing room has a giant freaking mirror behind it. And the phantom's face is there, just framed by light. And so Christine's like, uh, this is, this is really sudden. And Raul's like, I'm a bad husband to you. <laughs> He just straight up says, look, I know I've been a shitty husband. Okay, leave with me now. And then she's like, uh, can you give me like five minutes? Go find the kid. Give me a minute. Because Gustav has just wandered off again. And then the Phantom is like, hmm, okay, I, I hear the arguments, but, um, sing though. <laughs> and Christine's like, I'm being twisted two ways by these convincing arguments, just like I used to be. Oh my god. Like, seriously, this is the whole thing about Christine. She really thinks her only two options are be with a man who has been an asshole drunk for 10 years and be with a man who kidnapped and emotionally abused me. I want to offer two counter solutions. One, just go like be a single mom. You're the breadwinner in the family. You can like do this without being married or like emotionally connected to either of these dudes. And to be honest, even in the 1890s, while this kind of thing would be looked down upon, stars did it. Other option. Go take Meg's hand, kiss her, and you can go be two moms to Gustav the little creepy boy. <laughs> yes! Meg doesn't deserve this either. No, she doesn't. Meg and Christine have more chemistry and they're like, oh my gosh, hi! Oh, I missed you! Song than like she has with either of these dudes. Like half that song is each of them saying how pretty the other one is. Speaking of, we now have this like padding for time number as everyone wonders whether Christine will sing and like you can see Meg taking the kid by the arm and kind of shuffling him off stage so that's gonna factor in later this is probably the song bit that i like the most here is this reprise of devil take the hindmost because i am a sucker for three-part songs with different melodies that come together in the end except this one is kind of clumsily done but still everybody's wondering if she's going to sing suddenly peacocks you can see the set come in you can see the silhouette of christine and then the camera lingers on christine's face that winsome scared deer expression <laughs> As she's trying to figure out whether she should sing, and meanwhile in the orchestra, the conductor is going, shit, 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 just repeat the intro until she starts singing. <laughs> just like three points where you think she's about to start singing, and then they just have to repeat the intro again. Of course, in the wings, you have like, stage left is Raul, and on stage right, the Phantom's just freaking standing there. He's not trying to loom or be in the shadows or anything. He's just right off of stage right. This is referred to as an aria. I feel like that's a charitable term. This is the title song. Love never dies. She said the thing. She said the thing. Oh my God. This whole freaking song. This is a whole song that Andy Dubs wrote specifically for himself. Nobody else. He didn't write this for the audience. He didn't write this for the characters. He wrote this for him. And it goes on forever. Much like the sex songs. It sucks. It fucking sucks. You want to hear the whole gist? Love. Twoo love. <laughs> <laughs> is what brings us together today. It's just him talking about love. Love endures. Love doesn't die. It never dies. In fact, it keeps going. For the love of God, take me back, Sarah. <laughs> Sarah, please. <laughs> you know, even if you think that you stop loving someone, you don't. You don't stop. No, you keep loving someone forever. Um, Like, you love me, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Through this song, her head like slowly tilts to look over at Raul. And then it slowly tilts to look over at the Phantom. And it sucks. <laughs> this song really sucks. <laughs> it's like eight minutes long. 
And then, of course, she goes back to her dressing room and the phantom appears. Christine starts singing lyrics by Andrew Lloyd Webber about how perfect the song written by Andrew Lloyd Webber was. And how much she loved it and how good it was and how perfect it was. And the phantom's like, I heard you sing again, even though, like, this is one of those diegesis things. Because he's all like, I need to hear you sing again so I can get a boner. But, like, also, we have communicated our intentions to each other entirely through song. Don't worry about it. But don't worry. We have to take a break from talking about how good Andrew Lloyd Webber is. Because Raul left a letter in a rose. Yep, this is the scene where, like, the canon love interest graciously steps aside so the OTP can happen. The final assassination of Raul. Ugh, like, the whole letter is like, you know, it was stupid that we got together. We we were just like a crush, but we didn't actually really think about re our relationship. And like, Katara, I really think we should break up and you should go be with Zuko and I'll get with Toph. Then Christine, like, finally has a moment of clarity. He's like, wait, where's my kid? She calms down for five seconds and like, sees through her haze of being super horny for the Phantom because, oh God, they make out here. Oh God, they make out in the scene a lot. It's gross, actually. It's like watching two teenagers make out in that really like weird don't know how to make out way but we have a lot of feelings <laughs> and they're like oh did raul take the kid one of the trio shows up and is like no 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 raul went to the boat alone and then miss fleck pops up and is like oh i went by meg's dressing room and she smashed the shit out of her mirror that probably means she's gonna do something bad to the kid and they're like okay <laughs> and like her mom comes up they're like did you do this and she's like what no i was i just told my daughter who's uh, obsessed with you that you are in love with her best friend and that you have have a child together and she could never have you I, I, I don't know why something would go wrong <laughs> she's being honest here i'm not sure which i hate more madame jiri as a lying manipulator or madame jiri as a fucking idiot either way it's a bad scene like every female character that is not miss fleck every other female character is obsessed with the phantom and hates christine it's exhausting so anyway we go to the ocean i guess where Meg is gonna just sort of launch him off the pier. Meg is gonna, like, kill Gustav, I guess. He's also like, but I can't swim! I can only sing! <laughs> you tell me he has never, ever gone to a beach. No one has ever taught him how to swim. Guess not, because Raul's a bad dad. Raul descends from the ceiling. I'm a bad father! <laughs> and rises again. And an alcoholic, don't forget! Right, he's got a snifter of brandy with him. He gets winched back up into the ceiling, and the Phantom and Christine and Madame Giri all show up to confront Meg. And Meg whips out a fucking gun! <laughs> And starts talking about how she did sex work to fund the Phantom's show. That's that's just great. Like, what the hell? There's so many layers to pick apart there about how, first off, it's like stigmatizing sex work and implying that Meg is unclean because she did it. And also, how fucking cheap is it to have a plot point where, like, the main girl's best friend did sex work to fund self-insert dude's carnival show and he didn't know and didn't really care. It's, it's just bad. It's really bad. This is is the assassination of Meg. Yep. Yeah, and the worst thing about it is that the assassination of Meg is like all stuff that happened to her. She's a bad person because of stuff that happened to her. It's very much implied that she is awful for being a very popular burlesque dancer and working really, really hard to uh, please a man who has never noticed her or will never love her. She's terrible for that. 
this. This. The Phantom starts trying to talk her down. She lets go of the kid and the kid goes and Christine starts hugging the kid and the Phantom's like, it's okay. Here's a reprise of the beauty underneath. I can see the beauty underneath. You may be corrupt and horrible because you had the audacity to do sex work to fund my little empire. That's fine. We can't all be Christine and Meg immediately goes, Christine and shoots her. It's supposed to be played off as some kind of accident, but mm. the Phantom's an idiot. Madame Giri and Meg immediately go for help because Christine's gut shot and dying on the pier. They leave the show. They're done. Meg's last act in the entire play is to shoot Christine. And then she just kind of vanishes. And then Christine like grabs the kid and is like, say hi to your real dad, son. And the kid's like, no! and runs away and she's like well remember what i told you about love dear about how like you should just kind of ignore all of your feelings except like loving things and ignore all reason you'd think a bullet to the gut would affect her ability to sing nope as christine's dying out she's like oh phantom you have to be a dad now and he's like i don't know how to be a dad and she's like well you were doing a pretty good job in the basement earlier with like all the weird people in glass boxes <laughs> maybe keep that up and he's like okay i'll try she's like love never dies And the Phantom's like, no! Raul makes a reappearance for no good goddamn reason. And I'm really hoping that this leads to like a sitcom threequel where it's Raul and the Phantom awkwardly co-parenting this kid. Oh my god, yes. I'd be into it. And then he goes and stands at the end of the pier and falls to his knees and is sad. And then the kid comes over and takes his mask off and puts his hand on the Phantom's shoulder. And that's the ending shot of the play. Yeah. And then it pops up with like the usual, like really upbeat, happy ending music and everyone cheering and everyone taking their bows and like waving cheerfully at the audience and it's totally weird. My favorite part of this is definitely that as they do the curtain call from chorus to main characters, you bring everybody out in order of importance to the plot. And of course, Phantom gets the final curtain call and not Christine. This. And can I tell you guys a fun fact that I learned? What's the fun fact? A kitten almost saved us from Love Never Dies. Oh my god. Not how? I'm just gonna read you something from Wikipedia here. The Daily Mail announced in May 2007 that the sequel would be delayed because Lloyd Webber's six-month-old kitten, Otto, a rare breed Turkish van, climbed onto Lloyd Webber's Clarinova digital piano and managed to delete the entire score. <laughs> That kitten was sent from the future. That kitten was like quantum leaping. Are you guys ready for Smutception? Oh, oh no. no. Are you thirsty? Because we're about to fill your glass. This is Smutwatch. So while looking into Love Never Dies, I happened to come across a rewrite of The Phantom of the Opera as done by an erotic romance author. Is it any different? More sex, mostly. One of the world's most infamous stories of dark passion, now retold in a novel of breathtaking historical erotica. With more f***ing. An exquisite obsession. Christine Daae has heard terrifying stories of the man known as The Phantom of the Opera. But as the Paris Opera House's youngest and most compelling star, Christine has learned the truth about the scarred man. In a lush hideaway beneath the opera house, she craves the velvet timber of his arousing voice and quivers beneath the touch of his leather gloves. The Phantom is real, her music de ange, her liberator, and Christine is his inspiration. An erotic awakening, condemned to the catacombs beneath the streets of Paris, Eric watches the beautiful, talented Christine from the shadows. He is careful to keep his identity and his secret in the dark, but he cannot resist her beauty or her talent. Her extraordinary loveliness haunts him like no other woman, and only he can pleasure her like no other man. But his sensual power comes with a price and a risk to everyone who stands between him. For Christine, too, is succumbing to her most forbidden and her dangerous desires, and as she gives everything to the Phantom, her world spirals into the darkest and most dangerous eroticism of all. S&M. <laughs> 
It's a Fifty Shades of Grey <laughs> Phantom of the Opera. I love it. I love it so much. I hate this. Holy shit. <laughs> Nothing you had said previous to that had prepared me for that final word. What? <laughs> God, you even distracted me by reminding me that the Phantom of the Opera's name is fucking Eric. I had forgotten his name is Eric. To be fair, Andrew Lloyd Webber also forgot that his name is Eric. Oh, I'm so, like, delighted and also mad at you for bringing us Smutwatchception. Smutwatch 2018. Guys, this musical sucks. <laughs> that said, I don't regret the time I spent watching it. No, I feel like this is extraordinarily on brand for us. It was fun, not on purpose, not through any effort of Andrew Lloyd Webber's, but just because this is a fanfic. This is just the most Andrew goddamn Lloyd Webber thing I've ever seen. I kind of liked it if you take out the kid. I just still can't get over how much of a fanfic this thing is. If you're out there thinking, you know, this fanfic I'm thinking about is way too self-indulgent. Remember that Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote Love Never Dies. People got paid to be in it. He got paid to write it. And he has been steadfastly workshopping this thing for 10 years, going back and editing it, still trying to make it work. So you can do it. You can write the dumb indulgent thing and like enjoy yourself because Andrew Lloyd Webber has made a goddamn career out of it. Yeah, there's no way your fanfic is worse than Love Never Dies. Kit, what's your final fact? When in doubt, make it gay. <laughs> That's your recurring motif, though. Yeah, it is. It's definitely not wrong. Mac, what's your final fact? The only Andrew Lloyd Webber show I don't really like is Starlight Express. Is that a fact about the piece? I mean, it's a fact about me. You know what? Good enough. I, I don't really care for trains falling in love. But if it's cats, it's okay. Yeah, cats is fine. Because Starlight Express and cats are the same play. I, I mean, I like cats more than I like trains. What can I say? By the way, I found out the cats movie is going to come out on the same weekend as the next Star Wars movie. What the f***? I desperately want to show up to a midnight showing of Star Wars in costume, walk up to the box office and say one for cats, please. <laughs> Annie, what's your final fact? Um, sometimes maybe love should die. <laughs> I think that's about as much of this as we can possibly stomach. But don't you worry, this goth train ain't pulling into the station just yet. Since we got two episodes in October, our next episode will be the Rocky Horror Picture Show. With the undisputable fact that you can't polish a rhinestone. I Will Fight You comes out every three weeks. Wherever you download podcasts, just look for us. You'll probably find us. I don't want to remember all the places we're on anymore. That's a long list for me and it changes. I can pull it up if you want. No, that's cool. <laughs> but you can find us and all of our things that we do and where they are on Twitter and Tumblr. We are at Twitter at GemJamCast and on Tumblr at CrookedRussianCam.tumblr.com. If you want to support us, a like, review, comment, subscribe is always helpful. If you want to support us with money, you can do that at Patreon.com slash TheGemJam, where for a couple bucks a month, you can support both this and our other projects which are also really good she says that she's not the one who has to edit them join us next time as we continue gothtober and until then i'm annie i'm kit and i'm mac and we have fought you oh.